I'm Al Phil Reese, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for a poem that interests us, some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Penn Sound archive, writing.upenn.edu slash Sound. Today, I'm joined here in Philadelphia at the Kelly Writers House in our Wexler studio by Herman Beavers, scholar, critic, teacher, poet, whose most recent poems have appeared in Milas, the Langston Hughes Colloquy, Versadelphia, whose Penn Sound page I highly recommend for remarkable performances of his poems, who teaches, among other things, of course, on the literatures of jazz, both undergrad and graduate chair of Africana Studies here at Penn, whose new book is titled To Put Things in Order, Geography and the Political Imaginary in Toni Morrison's Fiction, and who is, I'm pleased to say, a long-time friend, I almost said long-time friend, <laughs> of the Writer's House, truly, and indeed a member of the Writer's House Advisory Board, and by Christopher Mustaza, a scholar whose work focuses on the beginnings of the Poetry Audio Archive and who has edited several collections of poetry audio for Penn Sound, including collections of Vachel Lindsay, Gertrude Stein, James Weldon Johnson, Harriet Monroe, and Edgar Lee Masters, whose writing has appeared or will appear in Oral Tradition, Chicago Review, Jacket 2, Empty Mirror, The Volta Blog, recipient of a grant from Harvard University's Woodbury Poetry Room to work on a book-length project called The Birth of the American Poetry Archive, and by Salamisha Tillett, who teaches English and Africana Studies here at Penn, who has published Sites of Slavery, Citizenship, and Racial Democracy in the Post-Civil Rights Imagination, and is currently finishing a book on Nina Simone. How far along are you? Oh, I shouldn't ask, ask that question. I mean, I, I feel confident that I'm, soon. I'm, I'm farther along than That's I... Great. Yeah, I'm excited. It's really exciting. So, finishing a book on Nina Simone, and who has appeared on, among other venues, CNN, MSNBC, NPR, and elsewhere and has published editorials for The Atlantic, The Guardian, The New York Times, and wrote the liner notes for the John Legend and the Roots album, Wake Up. You'll never, you'll never not have me say that. That was so cool. Did that win a, did that win a Grammy? They, not the liner notes, not the but, liner, the, but the, the, the album did. The album did. Yeah. 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 Uh, and who is co-founder of a long Walk Home Incorporated nonprofit organization that uses art to end violence against girls and women? Salamisha, welcome back. Oh, thank to you. Poem talk into the writer's house. I'm excited to be here. Thank Been you. Been a little off a little bit, so uh, but you're not rusty. I'm sure I can already tell. <laughs> uh, and Chris, you're at the writer's house all the time, but I think this is your first time in front of the mic on Poem Talk. Yeah, it's exciting to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad of it. Welcome, and Herm. Always good to see you. Good to be here, Al. Thank you all. So we're here today to talk about a poem by James Weldon Johnson. It's called "O Southland." Uh, and a rare recording of Johnson performing that poem uh, comes along with this, uh, this discussion. The poem was published in The Independent in 1907 and again in W.E.B. Du Bois's magazine Horizon in 1908. And probably most people first encountered it, contemporaneously that is, uh, in Johnson's book Fifty Years and Other Poems of 1917, and especially in the very famous 1922 anthology, The Book of American Negro Poetry, which was edited by Johnson himself. The recording has long been trapped, I think that's the right word, trapped on aluminum platters at Columbia University, in the archive at Columbia, and, in, and also trapped in a reel-to-reel dub that was made by the Library of Congress in the 1970s, 
Uh, and the original recording was produced by George Hibbett and W. Cabell Greet, lexicographers and scholars of American dialect. I have to pause the very fact that scholars of American dialect are giving us a poem that where dialect may or may not be in a, 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 a relevant matter. But anyway, nonetheless, uh, lexicographers and scholars of American dialect, Hibbett and, and Greet, uh, at Columbia University, they did this recording on December 24, 1935, and our own Chris Mustaza, who's here, digitized the entire recording of 15 poems and is the editor of Penn Sound's James Weldon Johnson page. So here now is James Weldon Johnson himself performing O Southland. O Southland, O Southland, O Southland, have you not heard the call? The trumpet blown, the word made known to the nations one and all. The watchword, the hope word, salvation's present plan. A gospel new for all, for you. Man shall be saved by man. O Southland, O Southland, do you not hear today the mighty beat of onward feet and know you not their way? Tis forward, tis upward, on to the fair white arch of freedom's dome, and there is room for each man who would march. O Southland, fair Southland, then why do you still cling to an idle age and a musty page, to a dead and useless thing? Tis springtime, tis work time, the world is young again. And God's above, and God is love, and men are only men. So who's you here? Who's, who's being addressed? Second line is the first instance of it, have you not heard the call? Herm, can you take a crack at that? Um, I read it as white Southerners who are wedded to the past, and uh, by virtue of that, uh, deaf to uh, the present uh, hubbub, of change. And uh, I mean, it's an early poem. It's 1907. So it's, it's, it's interesting because um, I don't think that the poem is aimed at a particular person, though in 1907, you certainly could or would have known of somebody that's a vehement segregationist who would have been in public discourse. Maybe it's Woodrow Wilson. Interesting. Um, Salamisha, do you have anything to add to that? And I'll just throw in the whole question of you being people, I think Herm's saying a people, some kind of identify. But then Southland is the, uh, you know, metonymic stand-in. So people are being referred to as a region, I guess. How do you translate Southland and what do you do with you? I mean, I guess to follow up to what Herman was saying, I mean, I think it's interesting because I'm coming to this poem really fresh, um, meaning I haven't, I'm not as familiar with it as everyone else is. It's that what, what's fascinating to me is the move between the geographic specificity of the South and then pulling backwards to think about the larger American landscape. And so on one hand, we think about, you know, we think about the past and we think about um, both slavery and segregation it being a kind of anomalous structure that we tie to the South specifically. But I think what uh, Johnson is doing here is moving in and out of the South to the larger American landscape. That's the Southland becomes America, right? It's not, the South is not anomalous, but it is the stand-in for the larger nation. And so while he's um, summoning his brothers and sisters in the South to be different, he's really 
calling the nation to rise to the occasion and, and hear the call of democracy or freedom. Thank you. Chris, anything to add? to the address? Uh, yeah, I agree with that, especially the part about being both like inside and outside the South. Uh, Johnson is from Jacksonville, Florida, and he has this really fraught relationship with the South where um, he's from there. He sees it as like his his origins, but he had very traumatic experiences there. And he later moves to uh, he later moves to the North. And you actually see in um, books like uh, the um, autobiography of an ex-colored man is actually that's one of the kind of themes is wanting to return to the south but feeling both at home and estranged at the same time herm how perfect is the meter um i see that you've done some scanning on your and your notes page it's pretty close to perfect uh no actually it's not um, unless i'm and i read it out loud several times um there are a bunch of inverted meters in the poem there are a bunch of uh triple meters in the poems, um, I, I find an amphibracic um, line. I find a, a dactylic line. He's got some really interesting things going on with rhythm in this poem. There are lines that are heavily stressed. So line five, the watchword, the hope word. I mean, there's there's more stresses than than um, unstressed syllables in that in that line. And so but he's keeping regularly to that, I believe, Herm, so that we get tis forward, tis upward doing the same right. in the next stanza. Right. So he's got some kind of regularity going. Yeah, he'll he'll pull back into an iambic um, from time to time. Uh, so it seems like it seems to me that maybe every fourth line of the stanza he'll he'll revert back to the to the iambic meter. Can we push a little harder on this to, to any of you and just, I mean, Southland is the key term here, or one of the key terms. Let's just say the key term. Um, and it goes against iambic. Mm -hmm. So if it, I mean, and I take the I am to represent poetic and other regularity and conventionality and Southland goes against it constantly. Am I overreading to see meter trying to slow us down from doing the regular conventional thing? I mean, the politics of meter may be always pushing it. I guess I have a question. And if that's true, mm. then how Thank does that... Thank you for the if, too, because I don't know. No, Well, if, if it's true that it's slowing us down, and yet the narrative of the, the content of the phrasing is all about a kind of inevitability of time or progress or racial equality always being on the horizon, but coming soon, what is that? What do we do with that juxtaposition between sort of meter and content here? Just... I uh, you know I would I would I think that's a great point and what I would add to that is um the unusual meters in this poem mean that um anything that you think you might be able to anticipate about what's going to happen in the south are undercut by the metrical shifts in the poem. How about the tone anybody? Uh it's been described every, you know if you google O Southland you get sort of high school crib notes kinds of sites which say this is a remarkably positive, upbeat uh, poem. And I, I don't know if that's miseducation, if students are being taught that, because it also seems there's an inexorable marching and you really ought to come along with it or you're going to get you're going to get marched on top of. Do, is that is that in there? Do we all agree there's some undertone there? The mighty beat of onward feet. And of course, there's the meter again. Well, you know, there's also an echo of uh, lift every boy voice and sing in that in that line. Mm -hmm. The last verse of of lift every voice and sing talks about marching and feet. Let's um, just do the footnote here for listeners. So that 
That poem turned into an anthem. Salamisha, anything to add about it? Yeah, I mean, it's a song that, well, James Weldon Johnson and uh, Rosamund Johnson, brothers, uh, John, James Weldon put, wrote the lyrics and Rosamund wrote the, the, the musical com- composition. And so it's a song that's become an anthem um, throughout the 21st, 20th century and 21st century. Um, and what's interesting about this in relationship to that, uh, and Imani Perry's written uh, or was writing a book about this, is thinking about James Weldon Johnson as a kind of bridge figure, right? So her book is thinking about how um, that song, Lift Every Voice and Sing, cuts across ideological divides. And when I was doing research on O Southland, what was fascinating to me was that, you know, as you said, Du Bois published it, but that uh, Booker T. Washington sends Johnson a letter and he says, usually Negro poetry or Black poetry is incorrigible, but this is actually a good poem. So you have someone like Washington and uh, Du Bois, who are at odds with each other in many ways by this point, 1907, 1908, actually coming together around this poem. And so there's something about Johnson um, and his work that speaks to multiple Black audiences as well as to the larger nation. Can we pause and say more about that? So the poem either is consciously or incidentally negotiating uh, on race politics and ideological uh, spectrum, uh, uh, Washington and Du Bois in this instance. So how does it negotiate it? And does, is it part of a plan, do you think, Herm? Well, I think listening to, to Johnson read it, and at one point he rolls his, his R's um, in the poem, and, and there's a speech that Booker T. Washington gives that he does pretty much the same thing. And so one of the things that, that um, strikes me about hearing the poem is um, Johnson's really formal delivery of the poem. I mean, this he could be Vachel Lindsay. Almost, not quite. <laughs> not quite. Not quite. But, but about but, the same time Lindsay walked into the studio and did did the real rolling R's. This is a good time for us to turn to Chris. Chris, just I, you could you could go on. You could have a, a whole hour talking about what it was like to discover these recordings. But can you say a little something about the situation for the recording? He was just a year or two before his death. He was an old guy. Yeah, um, and he was recorded in a dialect in a um, lab meant for the recording of dialect samples for ethnographic study, and so it's so, so interesting considering Johnson's really difficult relationship with uh, dialect poems. In in this particular collection, in 50 Years and Other Poems, there are like a section of dialect poems and there are a section of poems in the so-called standard English. He um, read 15 poems on that occasion. Were any of them dialect poems? Uh, yes, about I think about a third of them were, were dialect poems, um, some from this collection here. But Hibbert and Greet didn't stop him when he did this poem and say, no, 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 we want dialect poems. And what are what is the, the complexity, two questions, sure. what are the complexity, mm-hmm. what is the complexity about their hope to to have good dialect stuff, and then he comes in and does something that's um, really uh, high poetic and stentorian. Right. I write about this a little bit in what I hope will be my dissertation eventually. In, Is that um, a plug? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> buy my dissertation. Um, yeah. I don't think buy is an issue. God, you know, Chris, we need to explain to you about buy. Buy is not the thing. <laughs> but um, I, but uh, Crete and Hibbert are what we would think of today as prescriptivists, that they believe that there is a right way to speak. They do a study looking for the, the correct you know, U.S. dialect. And so I think it's just so interesting that they record Johnson and he does um, poems in dialect and in, in standard English. Well, we, well, you have the mic on this, and this is a little bit of a digression, but I promise we'll get back. Um, so they were on aluminum 
platters. Right. And years later, they were dubbed just, I guess, out of the concern that they'd be degraded. Right. And then the dubs sat there doing nothing at the Library of Congress. Degrading, Wa- yeah. Degrading, <laughs> right, yeah. degrading, because the dub was on reel to reel, and that stuff degrades faster than the aluminum, I would think. Right. So can you, without damning institutions too much on the radio here. Sure. Why did it sit there? This is James Weldon Johnson. Well, you know, the overall archive is huge, and it's not just poetry. Poetry is really the smallest part of the archive. Most of it is hundreds of dialect samples, recordings off the radio, presidential speeches. And so unless you really know what you're looking at, I mean, you know, there are, there are big poets, and there are T.S. Eliot and Frost, and that people would notice if, if, they, if they saw this. But unless you really took the time to look, this could just look like a collection of dialect recordings from, from the 30s. Herman and Salamish, let's get back to the poem. And now a a few stanzas in, it starts to get a little edgier. Uh, Why do you still cling? Uh, That's pretty, that's a real confrontation to the fair Southland. Uh, so Solomon should help us with this part of the poem. Say anything, please. Well, I know Herman is also going to talk about this, but for me, one of the things I'm steep in the mindset of Nina Simone's Mississippi Goddamn, which is also makes me steep in the mindset of um, King's Letter from a Birmingham Jail. And so there's a lot of resonance for me with those work, those later works, and this, particularly around this idea of individuals or communities or a nation clinging to some old way of being. And yet, uh, again, this onward feat that's in the earlier uh, stanza, the inevitability of racial progress um, and racial equality and, and that there's something happening in the nation and that to cling to this old, I love this idle age and musty page. Yeah. I mean, it's a really very literary, um, but also it's, um, you know, marking a specific moment in time uh, and marking these people as dead and useless. I mean, there's so much that he's he's arguing here and saying what's fascinating, though, is when you get to the later periods in 64, 63 and 64 when um, King and um, and Simone are writing their pieces, you actually know that the civil rights movement is happening. We read those other pieces as uh, both apocalyptic and prophetic. How do we read Johnson knowing what we now know doesn't happen and during And for us, it's time. inevitable to read it that way, of course. Yeah. Um, so, Herman, I'm a little, I think it's a little confusing or complicated if the musty page is the thing being clung to and that it's dead and useless. And yet the idiom here, the poetic idiom is, is traditional. Hmm. Well, so who's clinging to what and what's dead and useless? Well, you know, I want to reiterate Salamisha's point about the poem being prophetic. Because when I read this poem, I was really struck by how closely it describes what exactly is going to happen in the civil rights movement. Um, it, 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 so it speaks to the marching. It speaks to the South's resistance to the change. It speaks to um, the manner in which King's I've been to the mountaintop speech at the March on Washington is really about uh, re- revivifying the, the, the U.S. And, and particularly the South. So that I want to say that this poem... Um, I think the term that I would use is that it's an evangelical mm-hmm. poem. It's about trying to convert somebody that's resistant to the idea that they need to change their life. And so that idle age and musty page is 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 literally Johnson imagining um, this textual representation of the South's resistance to change. Interesting. But what is the uh, musty page? 
Well, I want to get back to that because he sort of evaded the question a little bit, but I, I want to roll with what for a second with yeah. what Herman no, no, just no. said. Um, this idea that tis work time. Mm-hmm. So it's there's a lot of bad stuff going on, but it's springtime and it's time to work and we need to renew because that's what poetry and right. and sermonic rhetoric does. It's the vernal, a vernal hope. So I, I'm really persuaded by that. Okay, but so now I want to go back to the musty page because it can't be the musty page of the relevant amendments because we, we want them to be actually, we want those words to glow and live. And it can't be, I guess it could be musty page of post-Reconstruction Jim Crow local legislation. Is that it? It's already musty? Because um, it would seem fresh and aggressive and new. I'm a little confused by musty page. Well, think about, though, the South, um, and one thinks here of, of uh, the agrarians. This is, low, this is well this is before, before the agrarians. The agrarians but, yeah. but think about that sort of adherence to the idea of the South as a pastoral... Um, space and a literary tradition and a literary tradition, right? And and in that respect, there there's sort of adherence to classical models of how to represent Idle the age. South, right? Idle age, musty page. It. Alan Tate, Ode to the Confederate Dead. It's about that uh, uh, medieval chival- chivalric romantic South, and Faulkner indulged in that a little right. bit too, didn't he? So right. so that might be it. I was just going to say also you could think of the musty page as a sort of um, visual foil to the oral, A-U-R-A-L, um, threads that run through the poem. Like when you see things like, have you not heard the call? Do you not hear today? And so it's like the performed is sort of like the live and the current and where things are going, and the printed word is static and musty and, and a thing that, that's of the past. Salamisha, your thoughts at this point? How are we doing with this poem? Do you feel like we've figured it out? Well, one of my favorite lines um, is, oh, Southland, my Southland, oh, birthland, right? So the move from oh to my to oh, Southland to birthland, and just moving in and out. And it reminds me, just because we're thinking about Johnson in a kind of a long tradition of African-American letters, you know, when Douglas's title of his um, memoir, uh, you know, narrative of Frederick Douglass, comma, an American slave, the ways in which African-American writers are always both claiming the nation at the same time that they're uh, rebuking it, right? And so this move from O to my, um, I think is where the optimism of the poem comes from, or at least we hear it there. But yeah, I mean, I think we're doing a good job. Thank you. Big question. John- <laughs> no, I think we are. Johnson did not read in the recording the final stanza. After I ask Chris why, I'd like to ask Salamisha to read it so it gets into the record, if you don't mind. And then I want to ask you about Remember, Remember, or ask anybody about Remember, Remember. Chris, any reason why they would have cut that off? Well, the or did, rec- you, did you miss it when you trans when you no no I, I, I downloaded it. the <laughs> I hope not um, that poem was one of about four or five on one side of a record that couldn't really hold that much information on the side I think it, the side can maybe hold eight minutes or something like that and so it's possible that they truncated the poem to be able to fit more oh, on less bad. media but that said I actually think it's a really interesting place to end the poem because that line there and men are only men I felt like pulls hard against the end of the first stanza of man shall be saved by man so like the one the latter seems sort of like you know reductive in a way it's sort of, it's it's kind of saying you know men are men what are you going to do and then the earlier one is a sort of like a pivot away from the divine to humanism to say like we're going to put our faith in our fellow people not in in a sort of divine provenance 
Good job reading what might have been an accident or, <laughs> or some horrible editorial decision. <laughs> um, Salamisha, okay um, uh, reading this sure. without any preparation? Sure. Um, sure. O Southland, my Southland, O Birthland, do not shirk this toilsome task, nor respite ask, but gird you for the work. Remember, remember the weakness stalks in pride, that he is strong who helps along the faint one at his side. Harm, can we do something with remember, remember? Did it strike you as hard as it struck me? Um, well, I, I read it as ironic, um, given that the South is sort of locked into a perpetual nostalgia. Um, so when he says remember, remember, it's almost as if he's signifying on the, on the South because he's basically saying um, your previous acts of remembering have been sort of tied to illegitimate um, illicit, um, actually damaging to the democracy um, sort of memories. And remember, remember is, I tie that to, it's a call to the, to the South's humanity is, is how I would read that. So that weakness stalks in pride, that's what we need to remember. What does somebody want to translate or paraphrase that we remember that weakness stalks in pride, stalks? Seems like an odd word choice. Well, I mean, I guess the other way we could do this is thinking about that you brought up the kind of um, chivalry that's that yeah. Johnson's um, pulling on or banking on in some ways. And so by pointing out that this kind of reliance on this old order is actually weakness, right? And so and that and that weakness being grounded in a kind of southern pride or a chivalrous relationship to um identity and gender, but also to the, the past, is at its heart what's going to undo the South. Um, and so I'm really fascinated by the next line, that he is strong who helps along the faint one at his side. So faint meaning who's the faint one? Is the faint one, you know, uh, a way of describing color, right? Or is faint... Disempowerment. Disempowerment. But who is that? Is it... Because it's another thing that's going on here is that he is playing on this idea, this kind of plantation nostalgia that you talked about in which, you know, subjected African-Americans are seen as weaker and therefore needing um, Southern plantation holders to take care of them. They would be the, the ones who are in power and the, and, and the viral the viral ones. But here he's doing so much, like he's pointing out, you know, actually virility is tied to those who are, are part of American progress, not to those who are subjugating it. Right. I'm really glad that you went there because one of the things that I thought with that word stalks is it echoes the way that post-Reconstruction black men get described as uh, these animals that stalk white women. So it's a really interesting rhetorical inversion because what's at the end of that line is pride. And part of what is going on um, with the whole transaction around how you construct black men in the, in the years after Reconstruction is masculine anxiety. Um, and so the whole idea of helping the faint along, I think, is, is how it goes, right, is, again, an interesting inversion because it's actually black people who are the strong ones, not white people. In, in, in both the racist imaginary, right. but also in the hopeful, futuristic vision. Right. So this is – so you're all pointing to an extremely deft and complex and mixed – political strategy on race politics. I mean, you, it's really complicated because it, it's doing a bunch of things at once. So let's go around and very briefly just point again, you may have already said this, just point again to 
the strategy to the logic, to the argumentative logic, uh, so that so that it's really clear to us, just anywhere. Well, I mean, I think that Johnson, as we were talking about before, um, kind of is both speaking from within and from outside of the South. And I think it's kind of like this sort of like pointed, like, I want you to come along and come to the right place, but like, I'm not going to let you off the hook for, for, um, what you're doing and, and kind of digging into a recalcitrant stance like that last paragraph, I would say that weakness stalks and pride is kind of speaking to people who think that an obstinate grasp on the past is a sort of a form of strength. And he's saying that's not strength. What, what to be strong means to move with into the present moment. I do think that we could think of the first stanza. And when he says, have you not heard the call, the trumpet blown, the word made known to nations one and all. So I think while this seems to be a, a poem relegated to the South or relegated to the United States, he's also anticipating or at least understanding the way in which America um, both has this, like, the trumpet blown, you know, reminds me, obviously, of, like, you know, Declaration of Independence. We're thinking about American freedom at its its best um, as as, as a, an experiment and as a project, but also that the world is watching the nation. And it's stuff that you kind of think happens later on, like you think of it as post-World War II or when the United States emerges as a superpower. But Johnson is clearly saying here that there is um, the political strategy that he's deploying is appealing to America on so many different levels to rise up to its clarion call of American democracy. The world is watching, and it's also the thing that will save the nation and itself. I mean, it's an interesting move between the domestic and That's the That's really great. The, word, the world is watching. Um, that would, or the world is reading a musty page and ought to read something new. But also the world is listening. Mm -hmm. And yet, if you're listening and, the, and you can't hear this poem with its own trumpet, then... You're not really reading this poem. Um, I think of McKay's "If We Must Die," right. which is a, which is a you know a more threatening and angry and revolutionary poem overtly. But what it does is it delivers a sonnet as a kind of Trojan horse, right. and this delivers this extraordinary, per perfect, high poetic verse as a clarion call, as a trumpet, and it says, "Go ahead, tell me you can't hear it." Well, what interests me is the next to last line of every stanza. So um, what I, I have, because I, I took this out of St. Peter Relates an Incident, and it cuts off that last stanza. But um, it does. It so does. this is another volume by Johnson. Right. Another volume by Johnson. A cuts penguin off the, reprint. Right. Cuts off the last stanza. Oh, interesting. Mm. Okay. Um, so a gospel new for all, for you, a freedom's dome, and there is Rome, and God's above, and God is love. So a uh, couple things. One, in two of the three lines, there's internal rhyme. But two, um, a gospel new for all dash for you. One of the things that um, is so clear in the language is that uh, this is inclusive. You, if this is a new gospel, you can, if you choose to hear it, be part of that gospel. A freedom's dome and there is room. I mean, part of what he's saying is this is not an exclusive moment if you want to if you want to get on the train you can get on the train and god's above and god is love part of what he's saying is this is not an old testament god that's going to punish you for being stiff-necked oh southland oh southland do you not hear today the mighty beat of onward feet and know you not their way 
tis forward, tis upward, on to the fair white arch of freedom's dome, and there is room for each man who would march. Fantastic. Uh, let, let's go around one more time. Uh, let's stipulate that James, well, and it's already been said here in relation to the way King picks up the rhetoric. So let's stipulate that James Weldon Johnson, one could not imagine a more important modern rhetorical precursor. So let's let's each just assume that and pick out a phrase. We've already started to do a phrase, a line that will look absolutely forward and be used later as part of the rhetoric of civil rights, just to underscore how important Johnson is. And if you want, as you go around, you can also say why you think Johnson is so important and maybe more important than a lot of teachers and, and students realize. The mighty beat of onward feet and know you not their way. Um, if, if that is not indicative of the ways that once we have visual images of, of Southern resistance to civil rights, to the civil rights movement, um, part of what the, the poem is saying at that point is the inevitability of the transformation that's going to happen. You know, so, so part of what the poem does in that moment is to take the rhetoric about freedom and say, you already know what this sounds like, but you haven't used the rhetoric in that way until now. I like this line here. It's a, it's a very subtle thing. Onto the fair white arch of freedom's uh, dome, there is room. Um, so I, I picked like the non-rhyming line, so it's difficult to read. He makes but, it rhyme, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. How does he do that? I don't know. Um, he says Rome instead Dome of Dome and Rome. He also right. says God. Right. Doesn't he? That's right. something else altogether. So I think that those two lines form a swerve because um, when I hear that white arch there, I think of God's trombones. I'm thinking of Go Down Death, where he's talking, where he talks about the white throne. He's talking about the pearly gates in heaven. And then you get this swerve to Freedom's Dome, where you think of the Capitol building. And so you get this kind of move from, again, I think the divine to to um, faith in, in man. I mean, there's the tis forward, tis upward, but I want to push to the next uh, stanza and talk about uh, tis springtime, tis work time, the world is young again, because I think the other part is like the inevitability of, of, of time moving forward, but also this idea that we can think of the civil rights movement um, and the, the movements that were tied to it, the women's rights movement, the gay liberation movement, and black power movement as moments when the nation is reinventing itself, right? Mm -hmm. And so what does it mean to think of the world as young again? I mean, in 1907, the world is quite literally young, right? It's a new century. Um, but that Baldwin, I'm sorry, Baldwin, that Johnson is here um, tying a new century, and we can think of also the new Negro movement or the Harlem Renaissance movement, as we call it, um, to this nation being reborn. Yeah, that's great. That's really great. Let me just add mine. Um, a, gospel's, a gospel new for all for you, it's been commented on, and then man shall be saved by man. So there's one way to read that, which is Christian, and that is that a man, Jesus Christ, would be, you know, God's way of saving people. But I like to think, but that's not the way the civil rights movement is going to do it. The civil rights movement is going to say this is a, we are a secular democracy, and, but nonetheless godly. So this is how King manages rhetorically to pull this thing off by continuing to be godly, by using the church's structures, obviously, but by saying the demands that we make, the we are constituted inalienably, sorry to make that an adverb, uh, by self-evident uh, equality. 
but it's not God given. It's people giving to people, man to man. So the secular democracy is being demanded here in the rhetoric of godliness, and it is about as powerful a piece of logic that surely the civil rights move, movement got from this and other things like it. Okay, so let's, we, we could go on forever and ever, which is great, a great thing about a poem like this, but let's just go around and say one last thing. It's going to be brief, but one point you wanted to make, you came all the way here and you had a point <laughs> to make and you didn't get to do it. So here's your chance. Chris, you want to start? Is there something about the recording that you'd like to tell us that you haven't had a chance to yet? Um, I would just uh, encourage people to go to the Penn Sound page and listen to the poems from God's Trombones, um, that uh, the creation and go down death, because I think it's so important to hear Johnson read them because the written poems are actually the scoring of speech sounds. He's trying to capture the sounds of African-American preachers of the early 20th century on paper because at the time he didn't have access to recording media. And so later he has the chance to to record these poems. And so I always encourage people to listen to the to the poems alongside the, te- the text of those poems. Terrific. Thank you. Salamisha, last word? Sure. I mean, what this poem enables us to do is to think about text in relationship to the civil rights movement in new ways. And so um, Jacqueline uh, Dowd Hall has a a historian has a a term called the long civil rights movement. And part of what I think is useful about Johnson's poem as it anticipates uh, civil rights moves um, and prophetic you know, articulations by people like uh, King and Baldwin and and Simone. Um, It also allows us to understand that this stuff was always kind of in the the atmosphere and that Johnson is an obvious precursor to some of these later moves. And that's really, so it it gives us a a new way of thinking about kind of a long civil rights aesthetic. I think that's that's helpful for us. That's great. And name the uh, the writer who wrote that book again. Oh, it's an essay. Uh, Jacqueline Dowd Hall. H-A-L-L. Yep. Yeah, great. Thank you. Herm, final word? A couple things. One point and, and two parts. Um, one, uh, I'm just really struck by how Johnson captures the cadences of what will become the modern African-American sermon. That's the first thing. And the second thing, I think this poem anticipates Langston Hughes's Let America Be America Again. Mm-hmm. Can you say just a little more about that? Well, I, because uh, part of what Hughes is saying is that the seeds of what we can become are already here. Um, the design is the design is here, but we've never adhered to the design. And so when he says, let America be America again, part of what he's he's saying is let's actually take seriously the the original design that was put forth and and there's some of that going on in the Johnson poem the promise yeah you know, the, the promise this is something that lots of political rhetoric has used and uh white political rhetoric that you know Kennedy got from Frost mm-hmm. when you know Frost said you know the land was ours before we were the land all that manifest destiny stuff, but in, in, involved in that is this assumption that we made promise that hasn't been fulfilled. And so uh, here's where it comes. Well, my final thought is uh, to go back to that first stanza and look at the phrase, the word made known to the nations. Um, this, is, this is, when all is said and done, a meta poem because it is a clarion call that's saying you need to listen to any clarion call that comes around, and this happens to be one of them. And if you cannot hear the cadences of this poem, you're kind of doomed. So listen, listen, listen. And here too, the word made known to the nations. The word made known, published. The word is this. This is the word. And of course, that's very New Testament-ish as well. 
Well, we like to end Poem Talk with a minute or two of Gathering Paradise, which is a chance for several of us, or all three if you're quick, to spread wide our narrow hands, to gather a little something really poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world. Herman Beavers, Gather Some Paradise. Uh, Robin Costi Lewis's The Sable Venus, which won the National Book Award. Say a little more. I've been I've been uh, reading about her. The response has been extremely positive from all quarters. Um, you know, just that uh, I think she was really the the dark horse. Um, I think that people thought that Terrence Hayes would win the award and and for how to be drawn. How to be drawn. It and did she, win some. Didn't how to be drawn win some other prizes? Um, I'm not aware of yeah. of, of of that, mm-hmm. but I, I know that it's been highly regarded. But um, Lewis snuck in there and. And, and got it. It's a it's a very fine book. Fantastic. Chris Mustaza, Gather Some Paradise. Uh, yeah, I would like to um, recommend work by my uh, colleague, uh, Ariel Resnikoff, who's uh, here at Penn uh, in the Comparative Literature Department. And Ariel does um, translations. Uh, he writes poems. And everything I've read from him has been fantastic. So I really recommend Ari's work. Great. Solomon should gather some paradise. I'm really out of uh, my element in this way. But I am actually really excited. Wait a minute. You're out of your element? (laughs) Now all of a sudden I'm You know what? You are paradise. Why don't (laughs) we just gather you? You're paradise. (laughs) Thank you. It's great to see you. Thank you. Well, I was just going to say that, uh, speaking of prizes, but in a different world of the Grammys, but Kendrick Lamar's um, leading the Grammy nods with To Pimp a Butterfly. I'm actually really excited to think about the possibilities of this political moment and the artistic production that's happening. And maybe it being recognized by institutions that haven't actually been so good about hip-hop for the last couple of years. Say just a little more about all that, if you don't mind. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, well, you know, that was it, so it, positive. <laughs> is, there a, is there an edgy version of that? <laughs> well, it's um, <laughs> been very challenging for hip-hop artists to be recognized for um, album of the year or record of the year by the Grammy committee. Um, so it, now to have this album, which was so politically explicit and tied but by happenstance, but also by design to the social movements that we're seeing, it's exciting to see that kind of album recognized in this moment. By Silly the question Grammys. for you. How does a literary scholar, how does how do scholars trained in literature add to the conversation about this? I mean, why do you feel like you're in a position to understand this situation uh, based on your literary? Uh, or growing up. As a hip hop, so maybe, no. <laughs> no, no, so no, maybe no. actually the literary stuff. No, no, the literary actually stuff. Actually, was a big detour. <laughs> no, no, it's no, it's. Uh, I think you know we t- Herman and I often talk about the relationship between the literary and the musical, and how our work tries to bridge these two different fields. But for someone like James Weldon Johnson, he was moving in and out of the musical and literary quite easily. So. I think it makes sense. I was trying. I was trying to go back to you know his musical literary roots by talking about Kendrick Lamar right now. <laughs> yeah. No, I got it. I got it. <laughs> it turns out he actually released a song called "O Southland." It's like different yes. lyrics, but it was I've, like a couple years after I this. Found it. I, yes. I, 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 I somehow I just knew that. <laughs> I think we we you know if you Google it, you find the the sheet music for it, and I tried to map it onto this, and it didn't match at all. So what do you think he was doing? Just taking advantage of a well known poem title and writing a different song? I don't know. I mean, I'm wondering if maybe this was really like his kind of, I I, I don't know the lyrics of the song, um, but just by title, I wonder if maybe it really speaks to his relationship with the South and his wanting to kind of to think about what the South can do to modernize itself. So for my gathering paradise, I just want to cede my time, as they say in the Senate, to to Chris and ask him a question. The Greet Cabell recordings, right? Uh, really important that they did this because although mostly they were doing dialect studies. 
they got some poetry in there. Yeah. And it's very important that they did. On the other hand, overall, and I'm going to use the word creepy and I don't really mean to, but, you know, it, it, the, the project gives me the creeps a little bit. That it was so so dialect focused, they thought let's bring this guy Johnson in because he can teach us about, you know, these weren't these weren't these weren't literary people. Well, I, I mean, I don't know that it's creepy because I don't know that they really saw the dialect. I, I I make the claim that the dialect and the poetry are related, but I don't know that they. I think that they thought of them as separate projects. That they we have this equipment to record dialect samples. It's kind of early DIY audio, um, and oh, we should use I it see. to record poets okay. because the com- they actually write like a polemic about the commercial record companies refusing to record poets because it wasn't sufficiently commercial. And so I think that they see this as a very democratic project of giving voice to people who wouldn't otherwise be recorded I if you had it. to go into a commercial recording Oh, great. Studio. I'm really glad I, I asked that question. So they were just using the opportunity to might as well get some things down for the record. Then they put them on a medium, aluminum, is it aluminum? Yeah. Aluminum discs that turn out to be impossible to deal with now, but they couldn't possibly have known that then. <laughs> well, that's all the uh, trumpet blown and world made known we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much to my guests, Herman Beaver, Salamisha Tillett, and Chris Mustaza, and to Poem Talk's directors and engineers today, Zach Cardner and Ari Lewis. Ari, this is your first time uh, doing Poem Talk. Take a bow in there. Ari, there she is. All right, thank you, Ari. And to Poem Talk's editor, the same amazing Zach Cardner. Next time on Poem Talk for episode number 99, I will be joined by Joseph Massey, Michelle Gill Montero, and Anna Strong, and we'll be talking about the poetry of William Bronk. This is Al Phil Reese, and I hope you'll join us for that or another episode of Poem Talk. <laughs>